Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Juan Quintana. He's a postdoc research associate in the McLeod Group at the Welcome Center for Integrative Parasitology. Uh, he's also part of the Institute of Biodiversity and Animal Health and Comparative Medicine, and they're at uh, University of Glasgow over in Scotland. So, Juan, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Yeah, tell me about your research. It seems like it involves parasites. What's, uh, what's the focus of it? Yeah, so basically in the lab, we um, study these type of uh, parasites, which are known as um, Trypanosoma brucei, um, but are at the causative agent of a disease called um, African trypanosomiasis, uh, or a sleeping sickness. And so basically this, this is a human pathogen um, that affects a lot of people in Africa, especially in rural Africa. Um, and it, it, it does basically um, have a, a very important socioeconomical burden in, the, in, in these countries. Um, so we're, we're currently f- trying to find ways to diagnose and treat these infections more effectively um, in a way to hopefully eradicate the disease. What, what does African sleeping sickness do? I've heard a little bit about it. Yeah, so basically the parasite during the first stages of the infection resides in the blood, uh, but eventually reaches the brain. Um, and it, it basically the, the major um, outcome of that process and, and kind of the, the feature of the of the disease is that people start having this sort of interrupted interrupted sleeping patterns. So you are you tend to be um, sleepy during the day and um, um, you have um, insomnia um, during night. So basically, um, that sort of manifestation it is what we now call a circadian disruption or um, an alteration of our biological processes. Um, so we know that the parasite reaches the brain and there is this outcome, but we don't know how they do it. Um, what are the mechanisms leading to these sort of um, changes in the sleeping behavior? And that is exactly what I'm interested in, 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 in investigating in, in, the, in the McLeod's lab. And, and that's part of, uh, of my work, is really trying to, to decipher the interaction between uh, the drypanosomes in the brain, and how those interactions shape and um, behavior in the host. Does it um, does it cause the sleeping disruption only when it reaches the brain, or does it happen when it's in the blood as well? No, it's just when it reaches the brain. Um, so during the first stage, what we call uh, hemolymphatic stage, which is when the parasite leaves in the blood, um, you, you tend to have fever and you feel a bit yeah, feverish and overall sick, but you don't you don't show this sort of interrupted sleeping patterns. And so only during the, the chronic stage or the second stage um, when, is when, when we actually found parasites in the brain is that when you start seeing uh, these sort of uh, changes in behavior in the, in the people that are infected with the parasite. So um, yeah, it's something that is specific to the parasite colonizing the brain. Where, where does the parasite come from? What's its intermediate host? Yeah, so basically um, the parasite is transmitted by this uh, fly, which is called a tsetse fly. 
um, and basically it's transmitted from human to human through the bite of this uh, fly. What does tsetse mean? Why does it have that name? Is there any special reason? <laughs> no, it's a. I think um, it's a. It's an African name. Um, I, I have no idea where it comes from, but it's a very particular uh, name. Um, well, you know what? I, I ask you because there's a virus called the chikungunya virus. Chikungunya, guy, yeah. Well, the guy, um, I believe his name is Saint Patrick Reed, that told me about it. He said chikungunya in uh, a certain African language means that which bends. You know, it bends the person. Oh, so yeah. I wonder if uh, tsetse means something if you look it up at some point. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will have a meaning. I'm, I'm not aware of it, but um, the species, the scientific name is uh, Glossina, um, and they're traditionally known as tsetse fly. They're actually quite big flies, and, 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 and the bite of one of those is actually quite painful. Um, Wait, when do they bite people? Like, um, are they, do they come in the evening like mosquitoes? Like, are they near bodies of water? Or where do they come from? Uh, well, they actually, they tend to reside close to um, bodies of water, so for example, rivers or lakes, um, and they tend to bite when people are working in the fields, um, and so, yeah, it's it's around that time, so they don't have a preferred time, uh, I would say, um, but yeah, so they just um, come around when when they come into, into contact with a person, pretty much. Do flies normally bite people? I thought they they go for food and dead things well, and stuff like that. They don't really bite people. They these flies are very particular because they like to eat blood. So um, it depends on kind of the, the the diet of the different flies. But these particular ones, they they are attracted to um, blood. So that's why they chase people or cattle, for example. They can also um, um, bite um, cattle. Do they? You know, if, if you have a naive. Um, is there such a thing as a naive tsetse fly, or they all have African sleeping sickness parasites? No, no, there are naive flies. So basically, they can become infected in a way when they come into contact with a person or a cattle that is um, infected. And I'm, I keep referring to cattle because these parasites can also reside in in cows, for example, um, or in other animals. So, for example, domestic dogs or or so on. So trypanosomes in itself are very diverse in terms of the host they can invade. But the particular ones I'm talking about are typically found in a person or in a cow or a cattle, really. Um, yeah, I just wondered, do they, um, it would be interesting if they, if they were naive, if they didn't bite people, or only when they were infected, if the um, parasite caused them to bite people when they normally wouldn't. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they bite people regularly that's part of their behavior um and then basically if if they happen to take a blood meal from a person that is infected and then they go and bite another person that's when the infection takes place but um otherwise yeah if, if a fly is naive completely naive then there is no reason for them to transmit the disease oh okay so once someone's infected then they'll be bitten by more flies and then the parasite goes back into them Exactly. So basically, the the fly is a is a, the intermediate host. So it, it goes mm. out of the person or a cattle. It goes into the fly, and then a lot of things happen to the parasite within the fly, and then they eventually manage to get into the another person, um, and then they complete their life cycle in that way. Oh, huh. interesting. Yeah. Um, so when they when they first bite someone, how do you know that it's only in the blood first, and how long until it gets to the brain? What it well, was noticed. Yeah. 
That is a that is a really good question. Um, so we know that they reside in the blood, but uh, working in the McLeod's lab has also shown that they can reside in other tissues such as the skin. And so that sort of uh, tissue residence of the trypanosomes in the skin um, favors the transmission of the parasite because that's where the fly will take a blood meal, right? So um, so in a way, this is a strategy that the parasite follows to to in a way complete their, its life cycle. Um, but if if we think about uh, reaching to the brain, it depends on the species we're talking about. So there are two main ones that cause disease in Africa. So we talk about Trypanosomiasis brucei gambiense, which is the majority of the cases. Um, and this parasite takes about years. That's hard to say, but um, months to years to to develop into this sort of second stage or or um, and brain invasion uh, to reach the brain. Um, what is the, the second kind of strain of the parasite, which is called Trypanosoma brucei rhodesiense, um, takes a bit, it's, it's a more, it's more aggressive parasite um, and it can reach the brain within weeks. Um, so it's kind of the same pathology, but speed up somehow. So, um, and it can, it, in both cases, if left uh, untreated, the, the disease is lethal. So people eventually die. What, what is the parasite like? Is it single-celled? Is it multi-celled? What is it uh, similar to? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so it looks like um, it's a bit bigger than a red blood cell. Um, it's elongated and it has a crest. So And that crest is a bit wiggly. So when you see the parasite in the blood, you see it kind of moving the crest um, sideways. So basically, it's like swimming. Um, so yeah, it's a very um, interesting parasite from from a morphological point of view. So okay, so but it's uh, so it's single cell. It's just an elongated it's a single type cell. cell. Yeah, yeah. So what does it do in the blood? How does it migrate to the brain? Like, what's its action once it's inside a person? Well, that's that's actually um, one big question in the field. We we know that the parasites actually um, interact with um, the vasculature in a way that eventually it leads to the parasite migrating through different tissues, including the brain. But we really don't understand the mechanisms by which they do that. And so we believe that there is a component associated with immune response to these parasites that is also favoring uh, that the vasculature then becomes leaky and that in a way helps the parasite to migrate through different tissues. So it's... um, it's, it's a complicated situation, but and, and multiple factors are at play to, to help that sort of process of migrating from the bloodstream to the tissues. Um, and, but the mechanisms are still unknown. So that's something we are also investigating in the lab. Hmm. So, uh, when it's in the blood, does it cause any symptoms or pathology? Like, what have you noticed? Yeah, so basically um, in the periphery, um, when people get infected, the first kind of signs are associated with that genital um, sickness, so uh, fever and um, lymph nodes uh, get swollen and people tend to feel um, overall sick. Um, and, and we also know that there is an enlargement of the spleen and the um, liver as well. Um, and yeah, that those are kind of the, 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 the presentation of the disease during the first stage. And then it goes away, uh, people recover, um, and then eventually develop these sort of second um, episodes that are associated with the brain invasion. So they'll get fever and they'll have issues, but then it'll go away. Exactly. They will go away. And that sort of 
disappearance of these symptoms are just a, a kind of a crosstalk between the parasites and the immune system that are leading to some form of uh, truce because these parasites are very efficient in establishing an infection. Um, and and if, if, the whole, if the immune system is not able to regulate itself, then it will lead to, to killing of the person that is infected. Um, so what it, what it does, the parasite is it induces an, um, an immune regulation. So basically um, the immune system kind of dampens down and then the parasites can survive for longer. Um, and, and, and it's a very complicated um, interaction between the parasites and the immune system. And um, when the immune system dampens down because the parasite is instructing it to act less, you think it's uh, gaining an understanding of the immune system and then saying, hey, quiet down. Exactly. Um, in a way, yes. And it's also beneficial for the host because if you think about it, um, if you have an, an, an excess of immune response, then you will eventually die. Right? So that's not beneficial for the host. So the immune system has to self-regulate and enter in this sort of self-preservation mode to, to, to basically avoid death. Um, and, and so basically it, it's sort of self-preservation plus the crosstalk with the pathogen that eventually leads to this sort of chronicity in the infection. And it's, it's, it's really complicated, the, the, the series of events leading to that. But yeah, there is a component that is definitely derived from the parasite um, and we have evidence in the lab showing that the parasites are likely to release a molecule that is associated with this sort of um, immune regulation uh, and this sort of uh, silence of immune response. These, the the uh, communication, does it happen through like extracellular vesicles given off by the parasite or what's the method? That is actually um, something that people have uh, beginning to study now. There is a really nice uh, article that came out a couple of years ago showing that trypanosomes can actually use these extracellular vesicles to communicate with each other um, and sort of coordinate this sort of um, communal behavior or this sort of um, social behavior in terms of the parasites residing in the host. And the obvious question is then, are they using these vesicles to, to manipulate their host for their own benefit? Um, and, and, and that will be um, an area we're not um, pursuing that per se, but I think it's an obvious question and I'm sure uh, we'll know about it um, soon. It's, 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 yeah, it's really interesting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Is there coordinated behavior? Like, is there quorum sensing? Where, you yeah. know, there'll be a, late, a latency period until there's enough of them, then they attack. So, yeah, how it works. So, basically, you end up um, with the, um, the tsetse fly. It takes a blood meal. It injects a, a bunch of parasites, right? But they're not nowhere near enough for them to kind of colonize and establish a long-lasting infection. So, they need to multiply really fast, right? And so, the way they do that is they start replicating. They replicate really fast. Uh, and we estimate that they do that every eight hours. So, um, so that there is an actual doubling of the population every day. Um, and to the, to the point that where they reach a certain level of uh, parasite density in the blood. And so when they, when they reach that point, which is very high, um, we know that they basically sense that density by um, peptides that are 
um, released um, or sense in the media on the blood. And that uh, peptides um, act as a kind of quantum sensing mechanism for them to then become into this sort of quiescent stage, which is called stumpy forms. And these stumpy forms are non-replicative forms that are then um, taken up by the Zetsi fly, and those are the transmissible stages. But then the, the downside of this stage is that because they're not rep- non-replicative, they, they eventually get clear by the immune system. And so the population of parasites crashes again, right? Mm-hmm. Until you have a tiny bit of parasites left. And those parasites left are then able to continue to replicate once more, uh, until they reach a second wave of parasites and so on. And that's what happens over time. But at which point uh, do the parasites then migrate to the brain? Um, well, uh, as I said, it depends on the, on the stage, but um, we don't, it's difficult to say for sure um, a time for that. Um, we know that in Gambiense form, the parasites can take between months and years to, to do this. So multiple waves of parasite densities going up and down in the blood multiple times oh. and they eventually reach the brain. And so what we believe or the current understanding of this process is that um, a combination of the immune response that is making the vasculature a bit leaky and the parasites themselves are driving this sort of brain colonization, but that takes a while. That's not something that happens overnight in the first stages of babies. And that makes sense because the brain in itself is a structure that is very protected. Um, and it has traditionally been regarded as a um, um, immune privilege organ. Now we know that that is not the case, that actually the brain has a very active crosstalk with the immune system during homeostatic um, and under homeostatic conditions. Uh, but during infection in particular, it's able to, the brain is able to sense that there is an infection going on and respond accordingly. Um, and, and you have a lot of cells in the brain that are there to kind of sense that sort of danger signals derived from the periphery. Um, for example, microglia, uh, which are resident immune cells in the brain, that that's one of their main roles, right? Is to, to tell the brain, look, we are in a danger situation, we need to respond and so, yeah, that, that, so, yeah that's, that's what's um, uh, happening. So is it, is it deadly only when they reach the brain or can it be deadly in the blood? No, they, they are deadly when they reach the brain and they are left untreated. Um, and so we have good drugs to kill uh, the parasites in the blood. And those are very efficient, um, although they're very limited as well. We don't have many options, but the options that we have are very good. But the problem is to treat the, the, the parasites in the brain. And the reason for that is that the, the blood-brain barrier in itself is very selective. So this barrier, it's, a, it's just vasculature that is separating the blood or the periphery from the internal um, kind of microenvironment in the brain. Mm. And, and because of its role and its importance, this barrier is very tight and very per- impermeable to a lot of different things, including chemicals such as uh, chemotherapy. Right. So if you have a brain infection, then reaching those parasites in the brain is going to be really, really challenging. And so that's why we don't have good chemotherapy um, to treat the second stage of the disease. We do have some, but they have a lot of side effects. Well, what about in the first stage? What if you were able to recreate that peptide and, um, you know, give it to someone on a continual or a a punctuated basis so that they, 
they never reach that, uh, you know, the, the parasite never replicates to any large degree. The problem is that the parasites can actually hide in other tissues as well. And even though you're treating the parasites in the bloodstream, once you clear them out, these parasites can repopulate the blood. So really understanding the diversity of parasites in different tissues is a challenge. I mean, that's something that we're all working on and towards resolving now uh, is to understand are the parasites in the skin different from those found in the blood and how capable are those parasites or and repopulating the blood once you clear the parasites with chemotherapy, for example. Um, and so it's a very complex disease um, uh, to, to actually treat, right? So um, that would be amazing if we had some form of therapy where you can actually induce a quantum sensing-like response and then kill them all because they're not replicative anymore. Um, but well, if we did it early on, I mean, again, wouldn't they keep the numbers low? <clears throat> if you keep hitting them with the um, the peptide response, yeah. at some point, you know, they, they wouldn't, uh, they would, I guess they wouldn't see a need to multiply, right? Yeah, the challenge then is, is to detect the infection at those stages. Mm. And, and because this is a, this is a, a rural um, disease in a way, um, it's really difficult to, to find people at those early stages of infection. So you really require a lot of uh, manpower to go into these African villages, chasing for people that are um, otherwise overlooked by the um, healthcare systems in these countries, or they're not going to willingly go to the doctor for general checkups. Or um, So it becomes a, re- a really kind of challenging task from a sociological point of view, how to implement an, an intervention strategy that requires early intervention. Mm. Um, when they multiply, or, well, first of all, what, once they're in the blood, what do the parasites feed on? So, they, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's another um, topic that is very on, um, um, a hot topic right now, looking at uh, metabolism of the parasites. And, and so what we have evidence right now, this is a, a very interesting study that came up um, a couple of years ago as well, um, showing that when the parasites reside in the blood, they tend to eat uh, glucose. Or sugars and but then when they live in other tissues for example the adipose tissue they're able to change their diet and then they start consuming um, more lipids so these parasites are actually quite clever and they're able to adjust their behavior and their diets according to what they have available and so yeah and that's interesting and actually we know that when they go from the from the bloodstream into the tsetse fly, they also change um, diets and they stop eating glucose and they start eating more amino acids, for example, proline and uh, other amino acids. If, uh, has anyone looked at people that are uh, diabetic versus not to see uh, the action of the tsetse fly, <laughs> if it's different? Because they may have, you know, tons of glucose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think, I don't think, I'm not aware of any any studies of those sorts. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question. Um, if, if the levels of glucose in the blood will change the feeding behavior of the fly and therefore um, the transmission pattern, right? Yeah, I wonder if that would, uh, the fly would go crazy and, you know, there's so much to eat, you know, preempt <laughs> yeah. itself or go fast. And... Yeah, I think, I think it, would, it would be interesting to see, and I think we don't have evidence of that yet, but it would be interesting to see if there is some form of um, coordination with the feeding of the host, in this case, people, for example, with feeding of the flies, if those are coupled somehow from an ecological point of view. 
Um, well, it, it also brings to mind maybe the opposite. What if um, someone fasted? Yeah. You know, would that would that slow down the progression of the? You know, they can't fast forever; they'll die. But you know, yeah. would it slow down the progression of things if uh, they were able to do that? Yeah, I mean, I guess if if you if you deplete the levels of um, um, glucose, for example, in the blood, you will still have parasites residing in other tissues, for example, the adipose tissue or the fat, and they will still be feeding on fat. So effectively, from a population point of view, you are not really affecting all of the parasites, just a proportion of them. Mm. Well, maybe a combination therapy between, um, you know, something that would reduce glucose temporarily, plus fasting, plus the pepside. Maybe there (laughs) is a way to, to work together with all these things and stamp it out. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, what we know is that um, there are multiple strategies in trying to um, to develop a rationalized drug development uh, to tackle pathways inside the parasites that are important for metabolism. So you are effectively depleting the parasites from its energy sources, and 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 there are multiple organelles in the cells of the parasites, basically. Uh, mitochondria or lysosomes that are important for that sort of feeding mechanism or energy level um, that can be targeted using specific drugs. So that is part of the rationalized approach to, to drug development. Um, and, and, and yeah, that's something that people, I mean, there is a lot of research going on at the University of Dundee to trying to tackle that. How many people uh, does this affect a year? Um, well, um, there are um, multiple reports. Um, it depends on the countries, pretty much we're talking about, but there is um, um, an overall estimate of about a um, quarter of a million people being um, at risk. Um, and the exact numbers I can't remember right now, but um, yeah. There are, uh, okay, but it's a lot of people though, right? It's a lot of people, yeah. Uh-huh. I can't remember the numbers, the exact numbers right now, but it's a lot of people, yeah. And there is actually uh, stubborn uh, foci's in, in Africa that they've been uh, traditionally targeted for eradication, but um, but they, they they still remain. So, for example, there are there have been outbreaks of disease over the past two decades, and 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 that has led to a lot of uh, people dying. And actually, a couple of years ago, there was an outbreak as well. Um, and people are still recovering from that outbreak. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, I think in the 90s, we reached something like 60 million people were infected. Um, and now the numbers have gone down, um, but it's not eradicated. And, and, and because of this disease also has a, a, a social component to it, and it depends on um, um, government strategies to, to kind of um, intervene and control and control the disease, when you have a socio-political issue in the countries and these programs tend to suffer, and therefore the eradication programs are halted, and so the disease tends to, to kick back in. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a delicate uh, situation, but it's, it's, it's under control, but it, there can be um, outbreaks. Hmm. Yeah, see, they're also called tick-tick flies. Huh, weird. <laughs> gross. They, I can see after the blood meal, they have a huge belly. You get like a gigantic gut from, from, you know, it's not a lot of blood, I'm sure, but yeah, fills them up pretty, pretty quickly, pretty quickly. And actually the parasites, when you, when you, the, the, when you look at them, the parasites are living inside this sort of um, blood that the tsetse fly has taken and they're living on sugar on the sugar that is found in that blood meal. 
but then they eventually start running out of blood, of um, glucose in that blood, and then they start switching to other <clears throat> amino acids, for example, that are in excess in the, in the tsetse fly. Um, yeah. Are there any, um, you know, like, uh, local remedies, maybe that have been discounted, but maybe you can investigate them and see, I don't know, are there any, you know, are there any medicine men in the tribes that are affected, and do they recommend anything? And again, because um, an investigation maybe uh, points to a clue on how to uh, counteract it. Yeah, traditional medicine is it's um, it's it's important, right? So people have been treating these diseases for many many years. So um, I'm not aware of, of um, those strategies, but um, I'm sure there are um, uh, ways to treat these diseases. Yeah, but locally, I mean, yeah. So what? Um, where do you feel like you're making headway in understanding it? you know, with your research, anything you think coming soon, that'll be a breakthrough? Yeah, so basically, uh, this is an exciting time to, to do this sort of research. I mean, the, the, the development of uh, technologies such as CRISPR-Cas9 and uh, single cell techno uh, sequencing um, is really helping us to decipher how diverse the parasite populations are within a person or within an animal that is infected. Um, and this information can then be used to, to design um, better approaches to treat the disease, to control the disease, and to ultimately eliminate the disease. And so um, these parasites are really easy to manipulate in the lab using technologies such as CRISPR-Cas9. So we, can, we have uh, been implementing this to, to test and interrogate things that are important for parasite survival within the host, and we're getting very promising. And so I think eventually what we're going to, in my personal view, um, the breakthroughs are going to be a really an, an understanding of how the parasite is able to colonize different tissues, and that post-talk with the vasculature is going to be essential for us to, to not only to understand that process from a biological point of view, but also to design better approaches for, to stop that, trans, that sort of migration into the tissue. And if you think about it, if you're able to block that transmission from the bloodstream into tissues, if you're restricting the parasites only to the blood, then you're able to kill them with drugs that we currently have. Right, and you, mm -hmm. you, yeah, so you, you don't have to worry about the parasites living in other things. This is far fetched at this stage, but this is what I think we, we should be going. Um, from my personal interest, I think um, combining um, these sort of strategies of uh, genetic manipulation and single cell sequencing to really test which part of the brains are really impacted by the infection and how those regions are then controlling behavior in the host. So for example, sleeping patterns or um, other um, neurological symptoms that are observed in, in infected people is, is really going to be um, interesting. Um, and so we have this um, idea that the hypothalamus in the brain, which is as a key region controlling circadian behavior or uh, biological uh, clocks um, is really impacted by the infection. But we still don't know if this is something to do with the parasite themselves or with um, the immune response locally and more um, systemically. And so um, that's something that I'm trying to, to address uh, within the lab. And, and I'm hoping that um, my research will shed lights into not just the mechanisms, but also the um, better ways to treat um, sleeping disorders. Yeah, do, uh, does the uh, parasite take a different form once it's inside the brain? Can you tell? Uh, well, yeah, there is, um, th there is some um, 
very old evidence suggesting that the parasites become uh, longer and um, they move in a different manner when they are in the brain. Um, and we have been revisiting this using uh, next generation imaging techniques um, that is really enable us to, to quantify and visualize um, parasites in the brain using whole organ imaging. So basically we take the organ, we clear the organ, so we remove all the lipids, so we end up with a translucent organ. And then we're able to take this translucent organ and to put it under the microscope and visualize and quantify these parasites. And so my research is really showing that these parasites are very diverse in the brain. Um, yeah, so I think they become different from a morphological point of view. And my hypothesis is that those sort of brain forms um, might be somehow dealing or inducing these changes that we see uh, during infection in the brain. Hmm. So once it's in someone's brain, how long do they have until they're, uh, you know, they're in trouble? Uh, well, yeah, that depends on the person. There is also a genetic component to it. So there are factors associated with susceptibility <coughs> to the infection or resistance to the infection. And so those people that are more resistant can live longer, um, even though they have parasites in the brain that might be somehow controlled. But older people are more susceptible and they might, might die quicker because of this sort of excessive neuroinflammation. Um, and so it's relative depending on the, on the person, let's say. Um, but what it's clear is that if you don't intervene and treat these people, um, they will die for sure of uh, neuroinflammation. Right. Have, um, have you done any autopsies where you take the fly out of them and, uh, you know, see what, or sorry, not the fly, but the, uh, the parasite and see how it's changed? Uh, from biopsies from these people. Yeah. Yeah. So basically it's a, um, what we, what we can do, uh, from, uh, donors is to take, um, cerebrospinal fluid, CSF. Um, and then the way we diagnose the presence of parasites in the brain or in the CNS is by looking under the microscope and you're, and you're looking for parasites living in this um, biofluid. Or alternatively, the other way is to determine the number of leukocytes or white blood cells that are found in the same biofluid. So it's either parasites or white blood cells that are um, diagnostics of infection. And um, there are reports showing that the parasites that are living in these biofluids are very different from the ones that reside in, in the blood. And so the question is now how they do that, how they adapt to this sort of new microenvironment, and it, how is that if we take those genes that we believe are important for residing in the brain, are they then able to colonize the brain and induce new inflammation? And those are all questions that I'm trying to answer in the lab. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Juan, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to uh, you know read papers and, and check it out? Well, um, my Twitter account, I will, um, yeah, um, I tend to post a lot of my work. I also like to put these sort of live experiments where I put um, photos of um, what I'm doing in the lab and explaining a little bit more of the uh, the goal of experiment and what is the technique that I'm using. And also uh, my research gate in my um, Google Scholar website. But um, yeah, I can put that on my bio. Um, okay. Well, very good. Yeah. Well, one, thanks for coming. And I'm glad you're working on this because I, you know, I would bet a lot of people uh, are not and not caring about it, not looking at it. So, Thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.